freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me a dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome to Free Association. It's just after 4 o'clock in the UK, in the north of England. Uh, It's 11 a.m. on the east coast in the States. The 8th of July, 2023, if that matters to anybody. I don't really do time that much, so it doesn't really matter what the date is. It matters what the day is sometimes, but uh, that's because I do specific things on specific days. But uh, the date isn't, isn't that relevant, really. I don't know why we've got dates. It doesn't make all that much sense. You can just do kind of the third day after the full moon after whatever or or you can you can yeah you can just do it like that you could do it by the moon or something like that and you'd still know what what the date was you just have wouldn't be numbers would it so i'm i'm disputing the necessity for the gregorian calendar or the julian calendar for that matter um <laughs> time's an illusion anyway so let's not worry about it too much to spend two minutes talking about something that's an illusion. But the rest of the show is probably about illusions as well. So there you go. And I did record a, I recorded a monologue yesterday, which I might play, but uh, I want to talk for a couple of minutes first. So I think it must be, it's got to be exhausting for, for people who are fighting, fighting wars on radio or anywhere else for that matter. It's got to be physically and mentally exhausting. And there's a lot of people fighting wars on radio, on on revolution radio, and 
yeah, I can understand why you might want to do that, but if it's an illusion anyway, why put your energy into fighting a war with something that's, that you've just in, you've just made up yourself, that you're just projecting onto the world yourself? If that's the case, I don't know. That's my, my basic assumption is that most of it is illusion. I'm still not sure how to fit in the physical, well, the physical aspects obviously are, are real, but they're produced by somebody who sees an illusion. Somebody defending themselves against something that may or may not exist. And then they start, the people who are defending themselves look like somebody who might be hostile, so somebody else starts to defend themselves. And then you end up with everybody defending themselves and looking hostile at the same time. So it becomes a self, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. You, if, you, if you're fighting a war or defending yourself against something that you've just created in your mind, then everybody's defending themselves and <clears throat> in theory, nobody's hostile. So we should all be able to just stand down and have a rest for a while in that case, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we just be able to have a rest, <clears throat> a rest from a self-created war? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I was going to do a show about bioweapons, but I'm not sure I'm going to do that yet. Uh, it seems like it might still fit into what I'm talking about, but uh, let, let's try this from yesterday, first of all. This is how I was thinking yesterday. And uh, I'm, not sh I'm not necessarily sure I agree with all of it today, but this was how it was yesterday. Let's, let's and fix, fix the audio on this because it's going to the wrong place. So let me sort that out. How do I do that? Where's the options on here? Hang on a second. I'll tell you what, let's not do that. Let's just go straight to the video that I was going to play which is the bioweapons video, and I'll sort that out while the video is playing. Uh, so let me share my screen again. This changes the whole, the whole concept of the show changes. So stop sharing and start sharing again. You know you need the right tools to make. With Shopify, you get all the right... This episode is brought to you by CuriosityStream, a subscription streaming service that offers thousands of documents... ...could end a thousand lives. Yet it's not the potency of ricin that makes it such a nightmare, or even the lack of antidotes. No, it's how damn easy it is to make. Naturally occurring in the seeds of the cast of bean, ricin can be cooked up by anyone with access to a coffee grinder and some basic chemistry knowledge. As a result, it has long been one of the most tempting substances for poisoners, bioterrorists and governments looking to cause carnage. Used as a weapon since prehistory, today we're telling the story of ricin, nature's perfect poison. In terms of common household objects that are secretly nightmare murder machines, you couldn't get much more nightmarish or more murderous than Ricinius communus. The scientific name for the cast 
bean plants, Ricinius communist, grows across the world, cropping up naturally in tropical climates. It also crops up in a whole lot of American gardens, where it's valued for its easy growing and pretty colours. And that's something of a mind because it also creates one of the deadliest poisons known to man. Found inside the seeds of the castor bean plants, ricin is to poison as what BFG was to the Doom franchise, the ultimate shortcut for just super killing everyone. As a toxin, ricin latches onto cells and stops them from making proteins. This means affected cells die en masse, leading to all sorts of horrible side effects for the animal they're a part of, and eventually leading to the ultimate side effect, death. Currently, there's no known antidote. Nothing doctors can do for you but try to alleviate your symptoms, cross their fingers, and hope for the best. Since eating as few as two castor beans could get enough ricin into your system to kill you, this is just a bit more than a little terrifying. But the good news is that accidental ricin poisoning is relatively rare. Rather than coating the seeds, ricin is found by pulping castor beans and separating out the different chemicals. Typically, this is when castor beans are mashed for producing castor oil, a process that happens on a grand scale each year without ever killing anyone. That means simply swallowing a castor bean almost certainly won't kill you, which is great news for negligent parents with toddlers determined to <laughs> eat just about everything. Rather, it's chewing the seed that releases the ricin and makes it deadly. Down in Latin America, where castor beans are painted and made into jewelry, this occasionally results in teenagers who chew on their bracelets getting hospitalized. Really though, that the chances of you unintentionally killing yourself with ricin are vanishingly small. It's when someone wants to deliberately poison you that things get terrifying. Ricin is painfully easy to make at home. While anyone wanting to kill someone with anthrax is going to have to first locate the spores, then get an advanced degree in microbiology to learn how to weaponize them, any would-be ricin poisoner just needs to nip to the store and buy some castor beans and a few other common products. After mashing the beans and their coffee grinds, the only step to getting a deadly poison is mastering chromatography, a process any chemistry undergrad could talk you through. And no, obviously, we're not going to go into any more detail than that. This is meant to be a piece of infotainment, not Exhibit A in some future federal prosecution. Thank you very much. Okay, so we've seen how terrifyingly easy it is for someone to make ricin. The obvious question is, what would happen if they poisoned you with it? If you've got a weak stomach, you should probably look away about now, because answering that question is where things are going to get really icky. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are three ways that you can be poisoned with ricin. Ingesting it, being injected with it, and inhaling it. While each is about as fun as a porcupine enema, the specifics of their spiky embraces are wildly different. Let's start with the most obvious way of getting it into your system, ingesting it. Of all cases of ricin poisoning, this is by far the most common. It may be also the least pleasant. Within a few hours of being poisoned or just stupidly chewing on some castor beans, you'd start to feel nauseous. This would be followed by extreme abdominal cramps, then vomiting, then bloody diarrhea. Inside your gut, the ricin would be attacking the cells, killing them, causing them to die in a microscopic genocide. But the damage wouldn't stop there. As the poison spread into your bloodstream, other organs would be affected. Liver failure, kidney failure, even failure of your central nervous system are all possibilities. While accidental ricin ingestion only results in death around 6% of the time, this would still be a roller coaster of pain. But if anyone really wanted to kill you, they'd probably use the next method, injection. For assassins, injection has long been the favored method of 
rice in delivery with good reason. Unlike ingesting rice in, injecting it doesn't quickly lead to cramps and projectile vomiting. Likely the first thing you'd notice is pain around the puncture wound, as the rice in attacks the muscle itself, causing necrosis of the flesh, a phase which would really advise you against Googling. Within five hours, general weakness and dizziness would overcome you, but it wouldn't be until approximately half a day had passed that the symptoms really hit. After that, your body would become a raft tossed around in a storm of fever, headaches, vomiting, and falling blood pressure. For about one in five people, this storm eventually abates. For 83% of injection victims, though, it ends in multiple organ failure and death. Yes, it's the last type of ricin exposure that really scares people in biodefense. That's because inhaled ricin could only come from a terrorist attack. In contrast to swallowing or being injected with ricin, inhaling the poison won't lead to multiple organ failure. Instead, the ricin will settle into and attack your lungs with single-minded efficiency, destroying them as surely as if you'd inhaled napalm. Within hours, you'd feel pain in your chest to develop a cough and flu-like symptoms. Your lungs would fill with fluid, making it impossible to breathe. Your blood pressure would drop. By the time a day had passed, you'd almost certainly be dead. We say almost certainly because there's literally zero cases in record of people dying after inhaling ricin. Experiments have been done on animals, but as far as we know, no human has ever got ricin in their lungs. And this is one of the few bits of good news about this deadly poison. It really sucks for use in mass casualty attacks. While purified ricin from a single cast of bean could theoretically kill a thousand people, it's simply not cost-effective at such a scale. Put it this way, if you wanted to blanket a hundred square kilometer area with an aerosolized pathogen, you would need just a kilogram of anthrax. By contrast, you'd have to source four tons of ricin. And pro tip here, buying four tons of castor beans is absolutely going to land you on an FBI watch list. Yet, just because ricin isn't cost-effective at scale doesn't mean it isn't a tempting weapon. Since prehistoric times, a whole lot of people have used it to kill a whole lot of their enemies in the most grotesque ways imaginable. On the board. All right, it turns into an advert at this point, so let me skip that. On the border between South Africa and East Wakini lies a cave with the deeply unimaginative name of Border Cave. But while its name might be boring, the same can't be said for its contents. One of the best preserved archaeological sites, Border Cave has yielded unique artifacts from 200 millennia of human history. In the context of today's video, though, it's mainly interesting for a specific discovery, one dating back to around 22,000 BC, a discovery which suggests humans have been poisoning one another with ricin since the dawn of time. The object in question is a notched wooden stick. When it was first discovered in the 1970s, it was thought to just be some cool old stick from history times. But when a chemical analysis was run in the 2010s, it was discovered that the stick had traces of ricin on it. It's now thought ancient tribes used this stick to coat their arrowheads in the poison, an ancient form of ricin injection. Chilling as the thought is, maybe it's not surprising to know our ancestors would seek to turn the humble castor bean into some kind of weapon. After all, that's exactly what countless modern governments have tried to do. Back in 1888, Peter Herman Stillmark became the first person in history to successfully extract and isolate ricin. Prior to this, the toxin had been 
mainly used by poisoners. But now it was possible to skip slipping someone cask of bean mulch and go straight to ricin. People suddenly got very interested. There was a problem, because by now the cask of bean plants was everywhere. Not long before, castor oil had been found to make a great lubricant for train engines, massively increasing their efficiency. That meant global up cultivation of ricinius communis. So when news of Stillmark's discovery broke, governments were all like, wait, these super common plants we've got lying around could be used to make a weapon and none of our enemies have done it first? Mmm. The first major push to turn ricin into a bioweapon came during World War One. With both the Entente and Central Powers already lobbing poison gas at one another, scientists at the American University Experimental Station began figuring out how to take things to the next level. One major focus of their research was ricin. The American plans for the toxin took two distinct forms. The first was to find a way to coat bullets in it to increase their lethality, the modern equivalent of those ancient tribes dipping their arrowheads in the poison. The only trouble was that ricin can be destroyed by high temperatures, meaning firing those bullets would render them useless. So the US turned to another method, creating a deadly dust cloud. Remember earlier when we said inhaling ricin was a really nasty way to go? Well, America wanted to inflict that on Central Power soldiers on a vast scale. The idea was that ricin would be refined into an ultra-fine powder, then spread in the air over battlefields. The only reason ricin dust isn't now as associated with World War I as mustard gas is that the military got cold feet when it became clear that there was no antidote. Before anyone could convince them to go ahead, the war came to an end. In the flurry of international conventions that followed, ricin was outlawed alongside other bio and chemical agents. So I guess that's it. Right, after World War I, all nations respectfully abided by these treaties and no governments ever again did anything evil with ricin. Well, you're in for a bit of a shock if that's what you believe. As we're about to see, the 20th century would be full of states trying to use ricin as a weapon. Sadly, some of them would even succeed. Coming up next, more terrifying stories of ricin in modern history. But first, here's a quick word from today's sponsor, CuriosityStream. CuriosityStream is a subscription streaming service that offers thousands of documentaries access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction series and right now as Markov had once been close to the country's communist leadership before defecting at the height of the Cold War. Now he lived in England, from where he broadcast scathing takedowns of the Bulgarian regime. It was dangerous work. Already Markov had survived two assassination attempts. Nor was he the only one. Just a fortnight earlier, fellow Bulgarian dissident Vladimir Kostov had been hospitalized in Paris with a mysterious sickness that nearly killed him. But if Markov was on the lookout for assassins that balmy fall day, it's doubtful he could have prepared himself for what came next. As he was waiting at a bus stop, the playwright felt a sharp pain in his leg. Turning around, he saw a man with an umbrella mutter an apology and get into a cab. It was a minor incident, one that could have been easily forgotten. It was also the moment that Markov's fate was sealed. That same night, Markov began to suffer muscle cramps and fever. The spot on his leg where the guy bumped him with the umbrella was in pain. He felt weak, dizzy. The very next day, Georgi Markov was hospitalized. Unable to figure out what was wrong with him, doctors initially assumed he was suffering from a weird infection. But since you've watched this far, you can already guess what was really going on. That man at the bus stop had been working for the Bulgarian secret police. His umbrella had been a weapon designed in collaboration with the KGB, one capable of firing a tiny pellet out of its tip and deep into a victim's flesh. And we mean tiny. The pellet now lodged in Markov was barely 1.5 millimeters in diameter. So small, you'd assume it was incapable of causing damage were it not for the tiny hole in its surface. A hole that held a couple of milligrams of purified ricin sealed with wax designed to melt after it entered a human body. Minutes after being injected into Markov, that pellet had released its deadly load. 
and now there was nothing that could be done. When Markov died of ricin poisoning on September the 11th, aged 49, doctors didn't even know it was ricin that had killed him. It wasn't until an autopsy uncovered the pellet that it became clear that Scotland Yard was dealing with an assassination. Even then, the truth of Markov's death wasn't confirmed until the early 1990s when communism had finally collapsed in Eastern Europe. Today, Markov's murder remains the most high-profile instance of ricin poisoning in history. Yet he was far from the only one to suffer this fate in the Cold War. That other Bulgarian in Paris, the one who got mysteriously sick just two weeks before Markov, well, after Markov died, doctors went back and examined a small puncture wound on his back. Inside, they found an identical metal pellet. It was only by sheer fluke that the ricin dose in Kostov's pellet had been just under the lethal limit. Yet it wasn't just the Bulgarians who were messing around with ricin in those years. In 1981, communist Polish agent and CIA asset Boris Korzak was shopping in a store in Virginia when he felt a sharp pain above his kidney. Within hours, he felt deathly ill with similar symptoms to Markov. Luckily, unlike Markov, he somehow survived. After these three assassination attempts, Ryzen slipped off the menu for killing dissidents replaced with more exotic agents like Polonium or Novichok. But even as governments were beginning to turn their backs on the toxin, another scarier type of group was getting very interested in it. It's time we met the Ryzen terrorists. Although it Although it had been first mooted back in World War I, no one took serious steps to create inhalable ricin powder until the Second World War. In 1944, the U.S. began to experiment with ricin dust at Utah's Dugway Proving Ground, where it was known as Agent W. The test got pretty far by spraying a form of Agent W that could be ground down to an ultra-fine powder was all ready to go. The scientists hoped it could be sprayed out of planes over Germany. But it wasn't before long that the Americans ran slap into the major problem that ricin poses as a military weapon there are simply far more cost-effective toxins out there. So they abandoned their research, just as the British and French would abandon theirs, just as Iraq in the 1980s would give up its plan to create ricin bombs. Yet all this research firmly established one unalterable fact. Powdered ricin that could be breathed in was super deadly. It might not be useful for killing hundreds in one go, but if you set your sights a little lower, if your main goal was to cause mass panic with deaths as a bonus, well, suddenly inhalable ricin was looking very tempting. The first to try and jump on this bandwagon were America's far-right extremists. In 1991, the feds busted a plot to kill U.S. marshals with ricin, either absorbed through the skin or inhaled. Four anti-government plotters went down. Across the next decade, several more militia group members were arrested for either owning or trying to make ricin. But it wouldn't be until the 21st century that ricin really exploded into American nightmares. On October the 15th, 2003, alarms went off at a South Carolina mail processing facility. Just two years earlier, in the fall of 2001, anthrax-laced letters had paralyzed the US postal system, sickening 17 people and killing five. In the aftermath of the Amerithrax attacks, the US had invested colossal sums in screening mail for biological contaminants. And now that investment was paying off. That day, a letter was isolated at the South Carolina facility. Inside was a small metal vial and two typewritten notes. The first one helpfully declared, caution, ricin poison enclosed in sealed container. Do not open without proper protection. The second stated the attacker's demand, calling him or herself fallen angel. They promised to turn DC into a ghost town. Unless, that is, the government repealed new interstate trucking laws. Wait, so, uh, hold on a minute. 
Yep, it turns out that the first Reisin letter attack in U.S. history was by someone majorly pissed off with minor changes to federal trucking regulations. And we mean really minor. The one that most concerned Fallen Angel was a two-hour increase in legally allotted sleep time for long-distance drivers. And it's here that we get to one of the oddest aspects of Reisin. Because it's so easy to manufacture, it doesn't just attract governments, terrorists, and... Walter White. It also attracts fruitcakes, loonies, and weirdos. People who, if they tried to make a bomb, would probably blow their own hands off, but who are still capable of schlubbing to the store and buying some castor beans and a pack of envelopes. But while this ease of production increases the chance of idiots getting involved in bioterrorism, it also means writing letters are way less of a problem than those containing anthrax. A few days after the South Carolina letter, another rice and envelope for Fallen Angel was found in a White House mail processing facility. Months later, in February 2004, rice and powder from a suspected burst envelope was found at an office building on Capitol Hill. Terrifying as this must have been for the staffers who were to be decontaminated, that was the end of it. There were no more letters from Fallen Angel, no attempts to turn D.C. into a ghost town. The trucking regulations that had inspired the attack were never repealed. In the end, the 2003 Rice and Letters had sickened no one, changed nothing, and killed nobody. Still, that wouldn't stop others from trying again in the very near future. It's not often that the tale of a deadly toxin turns into absurdist comedy, but that's what's about to happen here. Because there's simply no way we can tell the story of the 2013 Rise in Letters without it sounding goofy as hell. Despite being perhaps the dumbest series of bioterror attacks ever perpetrated, the story of the 2013 letters started off fairly dark. On April the 15th, a letter addressed to GOP Senator Roger Wicker set off alarms at the Capitol when it tested positive for ricin. The news broke the same damn day two pressure cooker bombs exploded at the Boston Marathon, raising the specter of a coordinated series of attacks. When another letter, this one addressed to Barack Obama, tested positive two days later, it seems like a terrorist cell might be out to cause carnage in America. But then things started to get strange. Down in Mississippi, a local judge also received a ricin letter, an unlikely target for any international terrorists. Then there were the letters themselves. Each ended with the phrase, I am KC, and I approve this message. Where the feds did some Googling, it turns out IMKC and I approve this message was the sign-off used by a small-town Elvis impersonator, Paul Kevin Curtis. It gets crazier than that, though. Despite arresting Curtis, the FBI quickly figured out that he hadn't mailed the ricin. Instead, a local karate instructor with a grudge against Curtis's success on the Elvis circuit had sent the letters to frame him for terrorism. And yes, that is a real sentence, that I just had to say. James Everett Dutschke was arrested shortly after trying to dispose of a coffee grinder that tested positive for ricin. He went down for 25 years. It later emerged that the thing that pushed him over the edge was Curtis falsely claiming to be a member of Mensa. Weirdly, Dutschke wasn't the only lunatic sending ricin that spring. One month later, another batch of contaminated letters were intercepted on their way to Obama. These were traced back to Shannon Richardson, a bit part actress who'd been in The Walking Dead and the Vampire Diaries. But rather than turning bioterrorists, she'd sent them to frame her hated ex-husband. As one newspaper dryly noted, today a marital spat developed into a full-blown bioterrorist attack on the White House. 
see what we mean about Ryson attracting fruitcakes. In the years since the 2013 clown fest, Ryson powder has popped up occasionally on the news, sometimes in scarier contexts and sometimes sillier ones. At the scarier end, you have the 2018 Cologne plot that saw an ISIS-inspired terrorist arrested with both bombs and enough ricin to kill dozens. At the less freaky end, you have the Quebec woman who tried to mail ricin to Donald Trump in 2020 because she wanted him to drop out of the presidential race. Needless to say, that letter didn't get anywhere near the president. Today, then, despite its extreme toxicity, ricin is most often associated with lonely weirdos who have watched too much Breaking Bad, weirdos with a grudge or a craving for attention, in some cases, both. Certainly, of all the bioterror attacks it's been used in inside the USA, ricin has performed miserably, killing a grand total of no one. But while it might be tempting to write the toxin off as little more than a joke, to do so would be foolish. There's good reason communist agents used ricin for assassinations, a good reason why militaries are drawn to it, a good reason why our African ancestors dipped their arrows in it tens of thousands of years ago. Lest we forget, ricin is one of the most perfect poisons known to man, a toxin with no antidote that leaves little trace after killing you. Sure, it makes a crappy bioweapon in the hands of idiot karaoke instructors, but get it in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing and you'll see just how deadly it can be. Perhaps the last word on this subject should come from Anthony Fauci, who opens an envelope in mid-2020 to find himself covered in mysterious white powder. It had to be one of three things, the doctor remarked. A hoax or anthrax, which meant I'd have to go on Cipro for a month. Or if it was ricin, I was dead. So bye-bye. So I really hope you enjoyed this absolutely horrifying video. Thank you to Curiosity Stream for sponsoring it. If you did enjoy it, please do leave us a thumbs up below. Don't forget to subscribe. And thank you for watching. All right, I think that's probably enough of him for the time being. Interesting, though. I remember those those Bulgarian, well, that, that Bulgarian who got done with the umbrella. I remember that. It's a, it's a long time ago. It was the 80s sometime, I think. But it it's still fascinating. It's fascinating that people would do these things to each other. And so you believe you've written some hit songs? Let's get rid of that. So even when the video's not playing, they still give you adverts on YouTube. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, so here's my question. If everything that we're looking at in the physical world is a kind of manifestation of ego and biases and kind of dodgy emotional trauma, why would we... Why would we keep doing it? That's my question. I don't understand. It's like if you if you already kind of know that you're looking at your own trauma so that you can understand it or so that you can actually see it or feel it again so that you can let go of it, why would you react as if it's real? I mean, obviously, there are times when people react to something as if it's real and then it becomes real for everybody else around them and then it's a problem but when it's at the psychological level and you can let go of it why would you why wouldn't you let go of it and if enough people let go of that stuff then the world becomes a much safer place a much safer place so the problem the 
the problem with it, with this with this kind of model of how the world works, it's like everybody's looking at their own trauma or their own cognitive bias or psychological bias or whatever word you want to use. I'm sure there's exact wording for all of these things, but I'm just going to use whatever comes out of my mouth for the time being. So if if you can let go of these things, which you can, why would you react as if it's real and then become the thing that's real for everybody else? Why wouldn't you just let go of it? It's because people don't know. People don't realize that what they're looking at is their own trauma or their own cognitive bias. So that's a problem. That's a problem for everybody because it's like if, you, if you can take out 10% of the world's trauma, then you're taking out much more than that of the world's actual physical danger. Because 10% of people with no trauma or minimal trauma are not going to be a danger for anybody else. So that means that all that fear and anxiety that's built up in the people that are responding to the 10% of people who used to have trauma now don't have the response. That's a bit complicated, but you, you get what I'm saying. So the... The real danger comes from a psychological perception of danger. And the psychological perception of danger, when it isn't real, you can just let go of it. And so instead of defending yourself and then looking like a threat to somebody else, you can just kind of let go of the trauma, whether that's in a, a, a psychotherapy center or new age stuff or, or old school stuff like yoga, whatever it is that, you, that gives you a way to let go of your, tra your childhood trauma or whatever trauma it is you carry, it makes you an, a non-threatening part of the human race once that trauma is gone. So that means that other people won't react to you by becoming, a, by becoming an actual threat to the human race. Unless they're seeing their own trauma in you, which is not much you can do about. So the the perception of your own trauma becomes a key part of this. So like once you see it, if you know you can let go of it, which you can, takes a bit of time, but you can, wouldn't you want to do that? Why would you want to hold on to it and fight your way through life and potentially make everybody around you fight their way through life if they see you as a threat. So it becomes a whole a whole cascade of delusional projection based on something that might not even be real from your childhood anyway. So anyway, that's, that's kind of what I want to say. The riots and attacks obviously is something slightly different, but the principle's the same. It's like if you're perceiving somebody as a threat, are they actually a threat or are you projecting something from your 
your childhood or from your teenage years or whatever onto them that makes them look like more of a threat than they actually are. And then you overreact. And then the other people around you have to react to your overreaction. And it becomes a cascade. And when it's somebody who's in charge of a country, who's reacting, who's projecting their childhood trauma, that becomes a problem for a lot of people. So that was kind of, that's kind of how I, how I work through that kind of situation. It's like at the very least, we need to be screening the people we put in charge to know that they're, they're not traumatized from their childhood about something that can be sorted out. So then pe the people who are in charge really need to have gone through some kind of psychological profiling. And we don't, we don't really do that, do we? we? We put them on TV and ask them questions, but we don't ask them questions about whether they've been through psychotherapy or not, whether they've been through counseling or not. And to me, that's a good thing. If you've been through psychotherapy or counseling, you're more qualified to lead the country, not less. Because at least you acknowledge there was a problem. And that, I think, is why it's one of the things that we need to think about. It's like, who do you put in charge? In a potentially tragic situation, like a war, for example, who would you rather have in charge? Somebody who acknowledges that they've got a, a problem and goes to look for counselling or goes to look for psychotherapy to sort it out, or somebody who just bulldozes through life, projecting their shit onto other people and doesn't know there's, there's a problem. I know, I know I would rather have the person who's been through the counselling in charge of any kind of situation that I'm involved in. So, yeah, that's it's something to think about. Something to think about. Right, let me see what else we've got on here about bioweapons. There was another one that I might play. So there's a lot of people linking China to COVID as a bioweapon bio at the moment. There's a lot of people talking about bioweapons but in the context of China. So that, that becomes a problem because it may not be real and we may be being set up for a war. But there's quite a lot of those. This one's about 15 minutes long. Let's have a listen to it anyway. This is, oh, this is from a year ago. So this should play without me doing too much to it. Let's see. I'll skip through the ad China's war ambitions, race and ethnicity targeting bioweapons. Hear me out. I am the first person to dispel myths, overreporting, or just sensationalism in general. I just don't like it. Lots of people get China wrong, both positively and negatively. And I have to say, I've avoided covering this discovery because of just how crazy it actually sounds. But here's the deal. I lived in China for 10 years and I'm very, very careful about what I cover because I need to fully understand a topic before speaking on it. But recently I've stumbled across something and when I read about it and fact checked it, 
and came to fully understand it. It turned out to be one of the most disturbing and sinister ambitions I've ever seen from the Chinese government. And now that I do understand it, I think that there's an incredibly important lesson to learn from it. We need to talk about something. And that something's called precision medicine. Precision medicine looks at the genetics, you know, the DNA, the environment, the lifestyle of a person in order to select a better treatment that could work best for them. It's simple to understand the basics. All you need to know is that understanding the genome or the human DNA structure can target certain diseases like Alzheimer's or cancer. Amazing stuff, really. The USA launched a precision medicine initiative and it pumped an initial investment of $215 million into it. I want you to remember that figure for later. An amazing example of precision medicine is the University of Wisconsin scientists who made an exogenous naked DNA and injected it into the veins for easy access into muscle cells for gene therapy. Does that not sound amazing? We might be looking at a future with less and less disease, longer lifespans, more time with loved ones, with less pain and less suffering. Until you understand the Chinese government and the People's Liberation Army, the Army of China's ambitions truly are. In fact, let me quote a colonel of the China's People's Liberation Army, Guo Jiwei, Director of Medical Affairs, with the exact same quote I just told you. But this time, I'll finish this sentence. University of Wisconsin scientists have made an exogenous naked DNA and injected it into veins for easy access into muscle cells for gene therapy. By combining this knowledge and particle gun technology, we could create a micro bullet out of one micrometer of tungsten or gold ion on whose surface plasmid DNA or naked DNA could be precipitated and deliver the bullet via a gunpowder explosion, electron transmission, or high-pressured gas to penetrate the body's surface. We could then release DNA molecules to integrate with the host cells through blood circulation and cause disease or injury by controlling genes. You ever wonder why the Chinese government was so eager to get genetic information from a large sample of global gene data, from pregnancy tests and DNA tests and other things? If you didn't know, China has access to an incredible amount of people's DNA, maybe even yours. A Chinese company, BGI, sold international pregnancy tests. So far, more than 8 million women have taken BGI's prenatal tests globally. Not only that, but multiple Chinese companies have contracts to access U.S. genetic data. I'm not kidding. Hopkins. Mount Sinai, these institutions receive U.S. genetic data. Some of these companies even have U.S. holdings to process data. And why would China want to access all of this data? Well, the answers are a lot more nefarious than I had originally thought. You see, the Chinese military owns that company. You know, that one that made the pregnancy test? And it might be connected to something that we once only thought was in science fiction nightmares. China comes up with something called a five-year plan for everything. It's a communist thing. They come up with these goals and targets that they must hit. And when they don't, they move the goalposts and said they did. A great example would be Xi Jinping, the leader of China's 
poverty alleviation campaign. It was declared in a five-year plan that China would completely eradicate poverty. Fast forward five years, and of course, there was still poverty in China, but they had to say that they finished it off. So now the standard of poverty has been changed to only 400 some dollars per year. That's pretty poor if you ask me. Anyway, the five-year plan in question today is the one put forward about precision medicine. If you look at the outline, it really looks fine and dandy until you get to the last and final feature. It says, national security focus includes special limitation on foreign access. Foreign organizations, individuals, and their institutions established or actually controlled shall not collect or preserve human genetic resources in China within the territory of our country. It may not provide human genetic resources of our country abroad. So basically, China has an access to a plethora of foreign genome data, and it restricts the outside world from its own. A bit suspect, but hey, that's just how China does everything, right? Then you look at the investment thrown at the technology. Do you remember when I told you to remember that $215 million figure from earlier? That's what the U.S. invested in the technology for disease prevention and treatment. Do you know how much the Chinese government invests in? $9.2 billion. The U.S. invested 2% of what China did. And it might not be for what the CCP wants you to think it's for. Enter civil-military fusion, or dual-use biology. It was adopted in 2016 alongside that precision medicine thing I just told you about. So as not to make any mistakes, let me just quote the Chinese military and scientists directly. The weaponization of biological bodies will become a reality in the future. Biotechnology will make biological weaponization a reality. New non-traditional forms of confrontation, such as biological attack, biological destruction, and ecological control will become possible. Biotechnological weapons can cause destruction that is both more powerful and more civilized than that caused by conventional killing methods like gunpowder or nuclear weapons. The increased pace of development of modern biotechnology tells us that the day on which we will begin to... If you don't know how to make cords, this is it. The cords are already made for you. We can check one of these chord progressions in. All right, I'm going to skip the ad. Yeah, we... There you go. Back to Chinese bioweapons. Day on which we will begin to make full military use of its advantages is not too far off. We believe that command of military biotechnology is a reasonable scientific presumption, not a scientific illusion. Emphasis was placed on the potential offensive applications of biotechnology, including ethnic genetic attacks. In other words, attacks that target specific races or ethnic groups of people. Through gene manipulation, we can attack or injure one or more key human physiological functions. The ability to learn, memorize, keep one's balance, or perform fine motor activities. When attacking an enemy with biotechnological military weapons, we can cause physiological dysfunction by producing an ultra-micro damaging effect to a gene or protein structure and functioning. Precision injury and ultra-micro damage are two vulnerating methods based on genomics and proteomics. Unlike weapons that use 
ammunition whose damaging effects can only be ascertained after shooting. We can test in a laboratory to the degree of damage biotechnological weapons produce. We can control the degree of injuries and damage produced and even provide an antidote or a cure, a vaccine, a counter-vulnerating agent, or a piece of bioinformation. Providing such an antidote for enemies would represent real mercy. You see, China has agreed to non-proliferation of bioweapons, and it has stated that it abandoned all bioweapons research that it previously pursued. It also consistently denied any interest or pursuit of biological weapons in formal statements, declarations, and disclosures by its state leaders and media. However, I want you to pay very close attention to this. It also states, China should not hesitate if it should have to defend itself to use as many means of warfare as possible, including weapons that are not permitted by international law and rules of war, such as chemical and biological weapons. Do you understand the absolute hypocrisy of these statements? This is something that the Chinese government does in business, trade agreements, and world institutions. They say one thing and they do another. And you, behind the language barrier, do not understand why they're doing so. Whether it's lab-borne or natural, the pandemic has been a fantastic proof of concept for the Chinese government to show how devastating a negative biological impact can be, and has successfully tested how it can be used for domestic propaganda. In other words, look at the rest of the world at economic and social squalor, bickering over vaccines, and turning the pandemic into a partisan issue. Think Republican versus Democrat. While we, China, have controlled the narrative and blocked enough information about the true devastation of the virus here at home, that the Chinese populace sees us, the CCP, as not only the victors, but also the saviors. There is a fantastic podcast I just listened to from my buddy Jordan Harbinger. He's a good friend of mine. He puts on an excellent show, but he just interviewed a guy named Rob Reed, on episode 510. The episode's called Why the Future is a Good Kind of Scary. They talk about while the fact that COVID-19 has been devastating on a global scale, it's comparatively benign when we consider how bad it could have been with a deadlier, more transmissible virus and a decimated infrastructure without access to basic necessities. He talks about why gain-of-function research is so dangerous, and he talks about how the death toll inflicted by the society's mass murderers is limited only by the weapons that they have available. It's absolutely fascinating stuff, and I highly, highly recommend you check it out. It's completely free. Link is down in the description and the pinned comment. Definitely, definitely give it a listen. All right, it's started to turn into an advert now, so I'm going to stop it there. Uh, so I don't normally tackle such subjects as bioweapons, but it's something that's been on my mind this week. And um, I've been listening to a, a lot of material by a guy called Kevin McCarran, McCann, who's a, a neuroscience guy. Uh, he's got a channel on, on Rumble. And he live streams two or three times a week uh, with some people who are all pretty much qualified to talk about the medical side of, in this case, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 and the vaccine. And uh, he's pretty much come to the conclusion that it's a bioweapon. I've 
obviously you had the the Karen Kingston material that I've played more than once on here suggests that it's, that the vaccines are a bioweapon and and the virus is a bioweapon and David Martin came to the same conclusion. So there's more and more people coming to the same conclusion. Even John Campbell read out a, an email he received the other day talking about bioweapons research. So it's it's creeping in slowly but surely to the narrative. Now I'm I'm suspicious because if if the US establishment wants to go to war with China, labeling everything as a bioweapon is a way to do that. Obviously because of the origin in Wuhan. So we could be being set up for war with China or or yeah, I mean it it still it still could potentially be a bioweapons attack, but it may or may not be from China. Was, there's a lot of deep state actors involved from the United States in these things, so it's, not, it's definitely not just China. If if China are involved in this particular one at all, then uh, why are there so many ties to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill? So I'm suspicious. And I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit cautious about doing this particular show, but I think we do need to talk about things. Just don't make assumptions. Question everything. Question question the people who are feeding you the bioweapons narrative. Question the people who aren't feeding you the bioweapons narrative, and ask yourself why. Why are they doing it? So question both sides. Find out what their motivation is. Find out who who pays them, who doesn't pay them, who they know, who they don't know, all of those things. What the particularly what the evidence is that they've got, because it, they could just be confirming their own psychological biases. If people have, have been going been going through some kind of childhood trauma, they'll look at the world as hostile, and if you look at the world as hostile. One of the things that it could manifest as is a bioweapons attack. So that may or may not be there. It may or may not be my own projection. I don't know. But I'm just saying be cautious and ask good questions. That's really what that's really all I'm saying. If you're gonna scream from the rooftops, make sure you've got some serious evidence before you do it. Because I'll, I'll be asking some serious questions when I hear people screaming from the rooftops. I just you'll normally switch them off anyway. But uh, you've got to take it seriously, but not too seriously. So it becomes it becomes something that it's like you don't want this stuff to get inside your head too much. You've got to live your life as well, and. Uh, yeah, so this is probably the one show this year where I'll be doing bioweapons. And I'm going to try and keep it light. Every now and again, I'll keep it light. or do a, do a philosophical show or a spiritual show. But there's real things out there as well. So it's like, how do you know what's real and what like real in the physical world? How much of it is... It's projection. That's my big question for the week, is how much of everything is projection? And it's a difficult question to answer. 
anyway, I think that's more or less it for this week. So you can find me <coughs> doing various things on Calling and Rumble and Podbean. Over the course of the week, I normally jump on once a day if it's a short show. Or I might skip a few days if I'm going to do a longer show. I don't always do any research. Sometimes I just jump on and and talk about nonsense. Just just to get it off my chest. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, I hope it's uh, it's been food for thought, if nothing else. And I'll see you next week. <laughs> Hopefully not, not obsessed with bioweapons next week. All right, thanks for listening. See you later. Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad.